All right, as Kelly just said, we're starting a summer series on the Psalms. I love, love, love the Psalms. And in this series, we're going to do something we've never done before, something a little different for us. We're going to attempt to answer one or two questions a week on video following the message. Maybe you got a question about something that I've said, something in this psalm uh, you've struggled with. We want you to submit those questions to us, and you can do it with the hashtag AskWBC. Now, I'm going to be preaching the next couple of weeks. I want, as we get this started, for you to ask questions that are pretty easy. But then Lon and Ted are preaching in a couple of weeks. I ask them killer questions. Just ask them impossibly difficult questions in love, of course. And we'll see how this thing goes. This is kind of an experiment. We'll, we don't really know what's going to happen. Now, one of the questions we ask on the front end of a series like this is, well, why? Why the Psalms? And the answer is because it's the Psalms that show us God's glory and what it means to love him, what it means to, to know him. The Psalms are a spiritual gold mine. That's because they're really a, a spiritual journal of life with God, of what it means to love God, what it means to, to know God, what it means to walk with God. Now, we have a lot of people in our different services that are on the front end of their faith. Uh, maybe you're here because you're trying to figure this thing called Christianity out. You're just investigating. Uh, you're not committed. Uh, you're looking um, and I want to say to you, this is a great series for you to sit in on, to sit under, because this series is really an insider's look at what it means to trust God, what this Christianity is all about and how it impacts us, and what it means to trust God in good times and tough times. At different points in my life, I have read a psalm a day for 150 days. There's 150 psalms. And over the years, I've done that uh, a number of different times. It's been really, really rich for me. When my first wife was diagnosed with cancer and things started to go downhill uh, really fast, you know, what, what's going on in a moment like this? What, what are you feeling? I can tell you what's going on. You're scared. You're bewildered. You're dazed. And it was my daily reading of the Psalms during that dark period of my life that kept me afloat. I love, I love, I love the Psalms. Life for the follower of Christ is a mixed bag. Blessings and brutal. We live in a sinful fallen world. So our lives are characterized by abundant blessings. But along the way, we get beat up. It's the Psalms as much as any book in the Bible that, that help us understand that, help us uh, get a perspective on that, and then help us walk through that. 
And today we're going to start not with Psalm 1, but Psalm 63. So turn with me in your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, grab a Bible in front of you to Psalm 63. The Psalms are, if you just kind of open the Bible and turn to the middle, the Psalms are, are, are close to the middle of the Bible. And we're looking at Psalm 63 because from my perspective, it's one of David's greatest statements of trust. Faith in God. And what I want to pull out this morning are five marks of authentic faith. Authentic Christianity. Again, this is insider's perspective. This is David's spiritual journal. This is a journal entry. And we're going to look at David's appetite for God, David's experience with God, David's identity, then David's worship, and we're going to conclude with David's confidence. Five different marks. I'll take them one at a time. But first, let's read beginning in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. And by the way, knowing that is the key to life. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you, cleaves to you, is united with you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Now, what we have here is a feast. But to uh, uh, appreciate this, I, I, I want to say three things real quickly about this meal, this meal of the Psalms. First of all, you're way down the road if you understand the Psalms are poetry. Many of them are songs. That means they are designed to express and evoke emotions, feelings. Centuries later, Jesus in the Gospels will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Psalms teach us how to love God with our heart. Number two, there are different types or classes of Psalms. Now, Israel as a nation understood that. So they would use thanksgiving psalms to express joy. They would use lament psalms to express sorrow. As a psalm of trust, Psalm 63 belongs to this wonderful class of psalms that includes some of our favorites, like the 23rd Psalm, the 91st, Psalm 121. 
Number three, some of the Psalms have a known, have a kind of more explicit historical context. And it deepens our understanding, it helps our understanding of the psalm when we know that context. So, for example, look at the title here, the way this psalm begins. The psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. So we have a statement about the historical context. Now, I forgot to have pictures of the uh, desert of Judah. Been there a couple of times, one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. You can't really appreciate it until you're there. It's so stark. So steep, it's so uh, foreboding. David is in the desert of Judah. Now look at verse 9. We are told in verse 9 that men are trying to kill him. And then in verse 11, he um, self-identifies as the king. He tells us the king. He is the king. So all of these are historical clues. Leading commentators to believe that what this refers to is the period when David has fled as King Jerusalem running for his life because his son Absalom is attempting a coup, attempting to overthrow David and has sent men to assassinate his father. Now, all this is recorded in the book of 2 Samuel in chapters 15, 16, and 17. And we'll come back to this when we launch our series on David this fall. And part of the reason we're in the Psalms is that the Psalms warm us up, help us understand, give us insight into David and his life as we launch that series this fall. And what we're doing is sort of whetting our appetite for the Psalms this summer. Now, all this to say, I mean, think about this context. I mean, you think you have family problems. Your son? Trying to kill you? And what makes this sound so awesome, so incredible, is that it's one of the greatest expressions of David's faith written during one of his darkest hours. God will take you through things you would prefer not to go through in order to build into your life things you could never build on your own. We would never have this incredible psalm if David had not gone through this incredible family crisis. So the five marks. Number one, mark number one from this spiritual journal is you are a person, you are a man, you are a woman, you are a student, you are are a child, you seek God, man, you long for God, you want to know God, you have an appetite for God, you are hunger and thirsty for God. This is verse one primarily. Earnestly I seek you, early I seek you. My soul longs for you. But we also see this in verse six, uh, at, at night. Man, I'm meditating on your word. At night I remember you, verse 8 as well. Uh, My soul clings to you. But I want to back up, and I want to put this in a theological framework to make a point. So hang with me for a moment. Look at the very first line in verse 1. David does not say, God, I hope you are there, because I've decided I'm going to start looking for you. 
Scholars point out that the Bible never says finding God is a result of seeking God. But the Bible says, rather, that seeking God is the result of having found God. Now, yes, the Bible teaches us in general that all people have a a God appetite, a a God-shaped vacuum. And we seek spirituality. And we seek religion. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But the Bible also tells us because of the fall, because of, of sin, that we don't seek, we don't even want the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 3. No one understands. No one seeks God. That is the one true God. Yet here David begins the very first line by saying, Oh God, you are my God. My, the personal pronoun. I mean, think about how you use the, this pronoun, my. When I use it uh, in reference to my wife, it's my Rhonda or, or my kids. And when I say that, uh, that, that word it, it expresses a, a close personal relationship. A a confidence, a a knowledge of, a a trust in. But David here is not saying, you are my God because I seek you. He's saying, because you are my God, because, and I won't take the time to get into that, because you have sought me and you have found me, therefore I seek you. So according to the first line, God is the cause. David's response, the rest of verse 1 is the effect. God is the governing reality. And what we see in the balance of verse 1 after the first line is David's godly response. The order is really important. Here's why. The way you can tell whether or not you know, whether or not you've met the true God is if you're thirsty for God. If you're hungry for Jesus. Years ago, Pastor Tim Keller, when he was preaching on this, said something profound. He said, the way you can tell you know God is if you're hungry for God. The way you can tell you really know God is if you're really hungry for God. And the way you can tell you sort of know God is if you're sort of hungry for God. So which are you? Do you sort of know God? Do you really know God? And by the way, I, I, I say this because some of you love God, you love God deeply, and you're starting to feel under the pile. Any of us who really love God are always going to feel that we don't love God enough, that we don't seek God enough, that we don't do this enough, that we don't pray enough. And sometimes we're going to feel like God is really absent that he's checked out. And sometimes that sense of God's absence can last a really, really long time. But I want to say to you, in light of what we see here, if that matters to you, it's really a sign of God's presence in your life. Appetite is always a sense of absence, of incompleteness. 
The absence of food here, the absence of God. And what's so remarkable uh, here is that the depth of David's appetite for God reveals the depth of his relationship with God. Now conversely, authentic Christianity <laughs> means you're always on guard. You are always, always on guard against appetite suppressants. Things that'll destroy your appetite. Now, got a number of moms and dads here. I want all you and moms and dads uh, to quickly raise your hands. If you're a mom and dad, and one of your parenting styles is you just love to fill your kids up on sugar and soft drinks and cookies, uh, you know, right before the eat. Raise your hand. Let me see the hand, parents, of those of you that love to do that. Okay, we got a bunch of kids raising their hands. No. We as parents do exactly the opposite uh, because we know that sugar robs our children's body of its necessary nutrients, the nutrients our body needs. It creates a temporary sugar high and it ruins our appetite. I cannot tell you how many times my mother said when I was growing up, growing up, Rob, do not eat that. Do not eat that, Rob. Well, Mom, it just tastes so good. It's the same way with sin. It's the same way uh, with the good things in our lives that we turn into ultimate things that we make into idols, like our appearances or our money or our work or our working out or, or power for us or our possessions or our play, our hobbies. They all provide a high, but left unchecked, they ruin our appetite for the living God. Now, David will have his share of problems. David will trip, stumble, and fall. He will have his share of struggles with different idols in his life. But when David became aware of it, what did David do, man? He confessed it. He turned from it. He brought it to God, and he repented, and he turned away. Here in verse 1, when David says, earnestly I seek you, I want to say to you, Thousands of years later, man, if your life is dominated by idols, you're not going to be saying, earnestly, God, I seek you. You're going to be saying, when it's convenient, sort of. Let me go on, mark number two. In addition to an appetite for God, you have a sense, a sense, notice it's underlined, a sense of the majesty of God. This gets interesting because in verse 2, David could be describing a, a vision. He has a supernatural revelation uh, of God. He, he could be, but the language here uh, seems to better suggest David is describing a, a, a moment when he's in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the earthly house of, uh, of God prior to, to the temple for Israel. Or maybe he's before the ark 
the Ark of the Covenant. And maybe the Old Testament law is being read, or maybe something is being sung, or something is being said, or David sees something. But suddenly, David has a sense of the power and the glory of God. And it just overcomes him. It overwhelms him. He didn't see it with his eyes, he sees it with his heart. And this is what David is getting at in verse 2. It's also what he's getting at in a bunch of different psalms, like Psalm 16 when he says, the Lord is at my right hand. Or Psalm 34 verse 8 when he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see, sense. All the physical expressions, these intense physical expressions of worship on the part of David here in Psalm 63. I mean, his eyes seen, his lips glorifying, his hands being lifted up, all describe something deeper going on in his heart, in his soul. So here, the way you can tell whether or not you know the living God, the one true God, is when information moves to sensation. And it grips you at the core of your being. Now this happens for me a lot when I'm in the mountains. I, I, I look around, I, I think of the, the, the psalm that says God's righteousness is like a, a, the mighty mountains. God's righteousness is like the mighty mountains. And it's if God's saying to me, hey, Rob, open your eyes. If I made these things, I can take care of your problems. And it calms me. And it changes me. It's exactly what Jonathan Edwards, arguably America's greatest theologian, said years ago, a long time ago. It's what he meant when he said, I should say, the mark of a Christian is the sense of God in the heart. The sense of God in the heart. Now, I, I can't explain that. I, I can't line that out but I can describe it. And if you've experienced it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's when you're worried, for example, or, or, or you're fearful, or you feel overwhelmed, and you're sitting down and you're reading your Bible and you're in Romans chapter 8, and, and all of a sudden you're reading about God working all things together for good and God's love, and you immediately have this sensation that God is going to get me through this, and your worry stops. It goes away. Or, or maybe it's a, a relationship thing or a, a family thing or a, a health thing. Uh, and, and a pastor says something in a sermon or you're talking to a friend, a follower of Christ, and that friend says uh, something, and all of a sudden a, a light goes on. You have this sense of that's right, that God is speaking to me exactly and precisely at this moment, and you know what to do going forward. I can't explain it, but I can describe it. It's tasting and seeing the living God. It's what David is describing in, in, in verse Two. And look at verse 5. This vision of the love of God, this vision of the power and the glory of God is the most satisfying thing in life. In life. 
And according to verse 7, it's the most strengthening thing. God helps. It's the most strengthening thing in life. I love this psalm. Psalm 63, because it's an Old Testament picture of the gospel, of God's grace in rescuing us from ourselves, from horrific situations. And nowhere, nowhere is this more clear than in our next verse, verse 3. And that leads me to Mark 3. This third mark is a mark of identity. Your identity is tethered to the love of God. People who love God have their identity tethered to the love of God. In verse 3, David makes this flat, remarkable statement, your love is better than life. I mean, who talks like that? If my son was trying to assassinate me, Thankfully, he's away working at a camp in Texas. (laughs) I mean, how would I be feeling? I'd be out of my mind. I'd be devastated. I'd be crushed. I'd feel so guilty. What have I done? Look, look, this is all, all my fault. I'd be feeling totally and completely defeated. I wouldn't want to get up. I'd be feeling totally and completely depressed. I would want to give up and die. As parents, we so quickly tether our identity to our children. But not David. Remarkably and counterintuitively, instead of dwelling on the failure and the hate of his son, he's dwelling on the love of God. Your love is better than life. I mean, who talks that way? And what we have is this incredible, vivid picture of an Old Testament understanding of God's love, of God's grace. And so the way you can tell your Christianity is real, the way you can tell you really love God is that regardless of what you're going through, you are secure in the love of God. And you know it and you sense it. I mean, you read this psalm, David is not... He is not mad at God. He is not ready to quit on God. God, I can't believe you're taking me through this. David is content in the love of God. And his son, well, his son is just trying to murder him. Your love is better than life. Now, there is nothing wrong. Let me clarify something here. There is nothing wrong with wanting the gifts of God. So you're lonely, you want a relationship. Nothing wrong with that. You're unemployed or underemployed. You want to change. Nothing wrong with that. You've got cancer, you want to be healed. Nothing wrong with that. David here wants God to protect him from his enemies. David asked God to take care of him. But what we see is authentic faith as being so alive in God, so full of the love of God and the grace of God that you're okay, you're even thriving no matter what. I mean, you talk about counterintuitive. This psalm is crazy. 
It's because David was a person, you're a person that sees the sovereignty of God. You see God on the throne, you see the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. You live in awe of the largesse of God, the generosity of God, the mercy of God. And so I wonder this morning, I mean right now, can you say with David, your love is better than my life? my kids, my work, my whatever. The danger for many of us is that we have this sort of shopping list approach to God. Where we come to God and we say, God, I need this. Uh, God, how about this? God, I want this. We pray, we pray. God, I got this. And we're always bringing to God our, our petitions. And, and when we're talking to God, it's always we're trying to seek God's gifts. Now again, there's nothing wrong with some of that, but that's, if that is exclusively your relationship with God, I got to tell you, it's a bad deal. Because when you have nothing on your list or when you're not shopping, you're no longer going to the store. <laughs> you're not seeking God. And really, what you discover is you don't love God, you love his gifts. Now let me go on. Oh, incredible marks here in the spiritual journal, insights into what it means to, to really know God. There's this appetite, this thirst, this experience, this identity. Mark number four is the mark of worship. Your worship leads to praise, to praise. So cool here. Because this psalm overflows with praise. I mean, look at verses 3, 4, and 5. It's just all sorts of different descriptions of David's praise of God. Now, what is worship? Worship is living in awe of God. What is praise? Praise is declaring your awe. Verbally. You live in awe of God, you're a worshiper, and you praise God. Uh, you, you declare that. Now, anything we love, we praise Anything we love, we post. Today we tweet. We get engaged, we get a new job, baby's first steps. Man, man, we post that because we love it. So we, in fact, praise that. It's declaring that awe. Anything you love, you praise. Why? Because your acknowledgement completes your joy. It's an expression of your joy. It's why you share it. So here in this psalm, over and over, David says, I will praise you, I will praise you, I will, my lips will glorify you. Now you men, you men, hear me. Praise is not empty emotionalism. We as men do it all the time. Did you see that touchdown? And you know what we do? We call our wives in to see the replay. You're not going to believe this. Now there's a logic to that. There's a logic behind that. And the logic behind our praise is we're responding to something that's excellent. Do you see that goal? And now go back to verse 3. Notice the word love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. H-E-S-E-D. 
It means steadfast, loyal, commitment, uh, unmovable, un unconditional love, uh, one-sided love on the, on the part of God. It's a pledge. It's a covenant commitment in the Old Testament that is unchangeable and unmerited. And here, it's the unchangeable love of God for sinful, fallen people ultimately expressed in Jesus Christ. Now, David knew nothing about Jesus. But he knows God's love is unconditional covenant love. We call it grace, hesed love. Maybe when he's penning verse 3, he's meditating on the end of Genesis 15, where God speaks to Abraham and tells Abraham to cut in half all these different animals. So Abraham cuts them in half, and then Dave, or God rather walks through, expressed in a torch of light, through each of the animals right down the middle. God, in effect, is saying to Abraham, even if it means cutting me in half, I will bless you. I will give you the land. I'm going to bless your people. I am all in. I am totally unconditionally committed to you. Maybe when David is writing this, he is seeing a Genesis 15 in his mind, and it results in praise. There is a logic, there is a theology behind praise. So you can tell whether or not you really love God, your Christianity is real, when your praise is real. Because praise, well, praise is just completing your joy. Mark number five is confidence. You are confident in the power of God. It begins in verse six, really picks up as we work our way through all of this psalm. Look at verse six. It's night. I don't know what it's like for you at night, but for me, things often get funky at night. I'm tired, it's dark, things can get blown out of proportion, but David isn't panicking. Man, he's calm. Why? Because he's remembering, he's meditating, he's thinking about God's word, the promises of God. On my bed, I remember you. Over and over, I go over verses in my head, he is saying. It results, verse 7, in David feeling so protected, he describes it as a metaphor of being under the shadow, in the shadow of God's wings. And then he talks about his enemies being destroyed in verses 9 and 10. And he concludes in verse 11 with this expression of joy. Now look at these two verses that come from uh, 2 Samuel. David is on the run from Absalom. He doesn't know what's ahead. Look at what he says. The king says to Zadok, Zadok the priest, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him, that is God, do to me whatever seems good to him. That is spiritual confidence. What is spiritual confidence? It's placing yourself in God's hands for good or for ill, in life or death. Because you know that he is the king and you are not. He is in control and you are not. So how do you know your faith is real? When you have confidence in God. When your confidence in God is real. 
Now, it's Fourth of July weekend, and I'll conclude with this. I want to go back about 280 years in the history of our country. Jonathan Edwards is preaching in Connecticut, and he says this. I'm going to read you something. I have this on in large print on my desk so I can see it all the time. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which the soul can ultimately be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children and friends are but shadows. But God is the enjoyment, or the enjoyment of God, rather, is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the fountain. These are but drops. God is the ocean. When you believe that, that God is the highest good, Psalm 63 is what it looks like. I can't think of a higher compliment for someone to pay you than for a son or daughter to say, you know, my dad, my mom, He is, she is, he was, she was a Psalm 63 person. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, in light of your word, and we present ourselves to you in giving to you, from uh, the financial resources that you have so generously given to us as we give to you in this act of worship, this offering, as we continue to worship you, as we sing, as we praise you, we ask, God, that you would speak to us for Jesus' sake. Amen.